Good morning. Well, I don't know if you've uh, read anything recently on the state of young people and their Christian faith, but if you have, if you've read anything on young people in America, their Christian faith and their relationship to the church, you will repeatedly come across the phrase deconstruction. You will repeatedly, all the time, you'll see that has become one of the more popular words in the evangelical church these days is the word deconstruction. What it means is um, people, young people particularly, are deconstructing their faith. Meaning at one point, they had come into the church, well, before that, let's back up. At one point, they came into uh, faith in Christ, because you don't come into the church apart from becoming a part, becoming, inheriting and becoming a part of the body of Christ, becoming a, receiving Jesus' life. So at one point, they've received Jesus' life, they've come into the church, and something has happened. Somehow, they got hurt within the church, which happens from time to time, let's be honest. That happens from time to time. People get hurt. And so as a result, they end up deconstructing their faith. And what you'll find, if you actually take the time to read their stories, is more often than not, um, they have placed their hope and found their identity in the church rather than in the Lord. They came into the church and they thought it was going to be a little bit like the Truman Show. Do you guys remember the Truman Show? Um, with Jim Carrey, they, they came into the church and they thought it was all going to be perfect, only to discover that the church is anything but perfect. Is that not true? Have you found that, by the way? <laughs> yeah, I hope you have. Uh, you'll discover really quickly that the church is not perfect. A lot of times, uh, what happens in the church and by the way, by the way, all of us should be deconstructing our faith all of the time. We should all be deconstructing our faith all of the time because there are so many things that get added to the Christian faith that have nothing to do with Jesus. And so all of it, like barnacles on, the, on a boat, they just weigh you down. And so all of us should be deconstructing our faith all of the time saying, is this really what Jesus actually taught? Is this really what, how the apostles taught, interpreted what Jesus said and taught it. So all of us should be doing that all of the time. That's not a bad thing. When you hear the word deconstruction, do not think of that automatically as a bad thing because we all should be doing it all of the time to make sure our faith is really rooted in Jesus and not the church itself. But a lot of times people get genuinely saved and they come into the church and they go through this honeymoon phase where everything looks great, but then something happens. And it destabilizes their faith. Or it completely shipwrecks their faith. And oftentimes, they'll, hear, you'll, they'll say something along the lines of, well, I've given up on organized religion. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? If so, you are in the right spot. Because we are the most disorganized church out there. So you've landed in the right spot. I'm kidding about that. We're a little bit organized. Um, the rest of the pastors are very organized, and they just point me forward. Um, but you'll hear something along those lines, because oftentimes, people within the church are messy, and they will act in ways that are not very Christ-like. Just as all presidents don't act presidential, just as all diplomats don't act diplomatically, just as all kings don't act kingly, uh, so it is true that not all Christians live like Christ consistently. And what that can do is it can throw a young Christian, an immature Christian, for a loop. And you may or may not be surprised to know that this is not, this is not a new phenomenon. This has always been the case. Because the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And we have to remember that. The church is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum for saints. And so it's always, there's always been problems within the church. And nowhere is this made more clear than in the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles with you, 
open them up to 1 Corinthians. As you know, we just started a series last week. We did an overview of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. And so we're going to spend the next year or so looking into and exploring Paul's letter to the community of believers in the city of Corinth. And before we jump into the text today, in case you weren't with us last week, let me give you a little bit of background. And if you were here with us last week, this will be review. And that's okay. Review is a good thing to have every now and then. So remember about Corinth. A couple of things just to remind you about Corinth. First of all, Corinth was on a narrow neck of land in Greece with a harbor on each side of it. Huge international hubs on both sides of it. And because of its location, it was the perfect crossroad. It was set up at, situated the perfect crossroads for east-west trade as well as north and south, the north and southern parts of Greece. And in Paul's day, it was a commercial center. It was a, a very a hub of commercial commercial center, very big. Uh, it was, population was close to 80,000 people, which in that day was only surpassed by Rome and Alexandria. And so because it was an international trade of hub, it was this busy, bustling, cosmopolitan uh, business center. Tourists flocked all over the place. They flocked to Corinth for, for events like the Corinthian, or the, I'm sorry, the Isthmus Games, which were second in size only to the Olympic Games, and they, they came there for the Isthmian Games every two years. They had a massive stadium that held 18,000 people that they brought in events, uh, musical entertainment, drama. Remember I told you last week the Gladiator Games was introduced in Corinth. Uh, it had all sorts of natural resources. It became known as Wealthy Corinth. Not because everybody in it was wealthy, but because a lot of people came to Corinth to make their wealth. And so, as we talked about last week, some of their dominant traits, the people of, of Corinth, they were infused with the spirit of competitiveness, um, self-sufficiency, self-promotion, freedom, pride in the attainment of knowledge. Also remember, it was uh, a very pluralistic society, pluralistic and pagan. At the, uh, there was a hill overlooking Corinth called the Acro Corinth, which situated on it was the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love and lust. And there, there were hundreds of, of cult prostitutes who would come down into the city uh, in the evening time and ply their trade. And you would engage a temple prostitute in worship of Aphrodite. And the term Corinthian girl, that, that was a slang term, Corinthian girl, it meant uh, a temple prostitute. And so when Paul came into Corinth on his second missionary journey, about 50, 50 to 51 AD, you can read about it in Acts chapter 18, what he does is he plants the gospel in the city of Corinth. He starts engaging the city through tent making, through proclamation in the synagogue, and then through discourse in the home of Titius Justice. And as a result, a little church springs up. This, these, this new life takes hold in Corinth. And all these Corinthians who were pluralistic and pagan, all of a sudden they get converted out of the way of the culture, out of paganism, out of pluralism, and into the one God of Jesus Christ. And so Paul does this for 18 months. He leaves, he goes to Ephesus, and while he's in Ephesus, he hears reports that the church in Corinth has gotten a little bit sideways. Uh, the church was divided with different groups who were claiming superior spirituality based upon its leader. And there were different, so there were cliques within the church. Can such a thing be? Cliques within a church? I can't believe it. They sued each other in secular courts. Uh, there was all sorts of gross sexual immorality. A man was sleeping with his father's wife. People were getting drunk at communion which obviously means their communion juice was better than what we have. <laughs> but they were getting drunk at communion. Their worship services were free for all sorts of individual expression, with people speaking in tongues all over the place and barking out prophecies however they wanted. So it was kind of just a free-for-all. And so, in short, the church was a mess. It was a mess. And so Paul writes, I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church that's a mess. If you have and it's this one, don't tell me. Um, but sometimes 
Churches are a mess, and Corinth was a mess. And so Paul writes 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians to speak into the mess and to help the young Christians there grow out of living in a confused culture because the culture was all around them, and they were still a part of the culture. Just like you get brought out of one culture and yet you live within the culture, and you just, when you come into Christ, sometimes you just assume the things of the culture are still true, and you have to go back and re-examine all of it. Well, that's what Paul's doing with them. He's helping them re-examine all of their assumptions about how they live in light of the gospel. And he does this. He does this for a long time. Now, he spends 16 chapters doing this, actually. And I want you to think about that, because when you get upset with your kids, do you ever get upset with your kids? When you get upset with your kids, do you spend a lot of time correcting them, or do you spend really short outbursts correcting them? When I get mad with my kids, I do not spend lengthy amounts of time saying, here's what I want you to do, here's how I love you, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I get really short and really loud. I don't know if that's your parenting style too, but sometimes that's my parenting style. And if I was the Apostle Paul, Here's how I would have wrote my letter to the first Corinthians. I would have said, hi, y'all are a bunch of idiots. Stop what you're doing, repent, and maybe I'll come and see you in a couple months. That's not what Paul does. He spends 16 chapters, and ink was incredibly expensive. He spends 16 chapters speaking into the message, I have to remind you of who you are in Christ. This is not who you are. I know who you are because you've been given the life of Christ. I need to remind you of who you are in Christ, and I need to remind you of my great love for you. And so he does. He spends 16 chapters doing that. And so uh, let's begin. Look at verse 1. Here's what you're going to see. Let me give you that line right up front. In verses 1 through 3, you'll see Paul's greeting to the church his greeting to the church, and he'll emphasize three things about the nature of the church. And they are issues that we as Christians who live in America, we must, um, we need to take to heart what he says in verses one to three. And then in verses four through nine, we'll see Paul's confidence in the church. His confidence in the church, wait a second. I thought you just said they were suing each other and there was sexual immorality and there was this and there was factions and there were cliques. What do you mean his confidence in the church? Well, here's the deal. His confidence is not grounded in their goodness, but in the Lord's faithfulness. And that's where all Christian confidence in the church should be grounded. It should never be in the goodness of the people. It should be in the faithfulness of the Lord. And we'll see why as we look at verses 4 through 9. So let's pick it up. Beginning in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul dresses, he uh, introduces himself. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, called to be the holy people of God in Corinth, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul dictates the letter, and uh, Sosthenes there, he puts pen to parchment. And um, by the way, Sosthenes, just take note of that, um, because while he's with Paul in Ephesus, he was well known to the community of believers there at Corinth. Because if you remember from last week, when Paul was in Corinth, he was preaching at the synagogue before he moved to the home of Titius Justice. And while he was preaching, a man by the name of Crispus, the synagogue ruler came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so the synagogue, think about it, the synagogue, whose official line at the time would have been, we believe that Jesus is a good teacher, but we don't believe he's the Messiah. 
they had to, at that moment, they had to appoint another synagogue ruler because Crispus is now a believer in Jesus Christ. He can't be the synagogue ruler. And so they appoint a man by the name of Sosthenes. And Sosthenes, after a period of time, after, uh, after hearing Paul preach for 18 months, he disagrees with Paul so much so that he takes him to civil court. And the, the uh, judge at the time was a guy by the name of, of Galileo, and he says, this is a religious matter, this is a civil court, I want nothing to do with this, so he throws the, the case out. And at the time, the Jews were so ticked at Sosthenes that they beat him. But Paul was there. And over the next little bit of time, this man now, the second synagogue ruler, now gets converted to Christ. And so, second time, in less than two years, a synagogue ruler has ended up giving his life to Christ. The conversion to Christ of two leading officials of the Jewish community, one after another, it must have sent shockwaves through that community. Absolute shockwaves. By the way, a similar thing happened not long ago, uh, several years back, actually, now that I think about it, in uh, Oxford, Oxford University, at the heyday of the Humanist Society. Its president, the president of the, the Humanist Society at Oxford University, was converted to Christ, which led to this extraordinary general meeting. And the person that they then elected to become the president, he himself, within the next couple of weeks, was also converted to Christ. <laughs> and again, it sent shockwaves through that community. And it reminds us, it absolutely reminds us um, that the opportunities for the gospel, there are opportunities for gospel effectiveness even amongst those most entrenched in official opposition. And that was certainly the case with the Oxford community, the, the humanist society, and also for the Jewish community of Paul's day. So Paul, he dictates this letter, and Sosthenes, he, put, he pins it. And what Paul does in verses 1 through 3 is he emphasizes three things about the nature of the church. Anywhere where Christ's people are gathered to worship Jesus, these three things are present. And when they're not, the church will go sideways really, really quickly. So what does Paul emphasize in these first three verses? Well, notice it. First, the church, it's built upon the apostolic teaching. It's built, the church is built upon apostolic teaching. You see in verse 1, that Paul, as he, as he does in all his other letters, most of his other letters, he emphasizes his apostolic authority. And he says, I was called into this. This is not something I sought after. It's something the Lord himself called me into. The Lord called me into this role. And we'll talk more in the upcoming weeks about what apostleship actually looks like, the marks of an apostle. We'll see it in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll talk more about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and then we'll spend a lot of time on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 12. And it's important that we do, because there are people in our day who are claiming to be the new apostles for this age, and they claim a ton of authority. And so we need to be wise about what actually apostleship is. But the apostles, the true apostles, through divine revelation and inspiration, they were the authoritative spokesmen for and witnesses to and the interpreters of God and his son. Their, now listen, their personal authority as teachers and guides, authority that was bestowed upon them, by the way, not something that they went seeking after. It, it was bestowed upon. This authority was bestowed upon them. And it was guaranteed by the risen Christ. And their authority was final. And no appeal away from it. Um, there is no appeal away from it. From what they said and from what they taught. Now listen, that's the key. There's no appeal away from what they said or what they taught. What they said, how they interpreted Christ's teaching, Christ's words, and how they interpreted it in the divine revelation they saw or they received, that's the teaching the church has to be built on. That's the key. And so Paul's, uh, he's asserting his apostolic authority. Why? Well, because there were some in Corinth who were trying to minimize it who were trying to sweep what Paul said under the rug. And the church is built upon the apostolic teaching. You think of Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And when the church, now listen, when the church moves away from the apostolic teaching, 
when the church moves away from apostolic teaching and they start reinterpreting it to accommodate the surrounding culture, what they end up doing is they slide right on into apostasy. Because that's a very slippery slope. The moment you start reinterpreting the apostolic teaching, you have entered into a slippery slope and you will slide right on down into apostasy. I don't know if you know, this summer at TCF, our kids, our teens, and our adults all spent 12 weeks working through the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, um, it wasn't written by the apostles themselves, but it's a summation of everything that the apostles taught. And it's a, it's a great creed. It's absolutely wonderful, and I encourage everybody to learn it. Well, um, a minister, uh, Rachel Small Stokes, in 2021, she's a minister in, in the United Church of Christ. She pinned the Sparkles Creed. And the Sparkles Creed is now being used in the United Church of Christ in some places, and also in uh, one branch of the Lutheran Church. Let me read it to you. Here's what it says. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt, whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love. So, beloved, let us love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. Amen. Okay, now listen. Listen, listen, you look at this and you, I see your mouths have dropped open for some of you. Now listen though, this was penned by an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and it's been recited in some, some United Church of Christ and also in one branch of the Lutheran Church. Now how could, that, how could such a thing be? You want to know how? They started reinterpreting the apostolic teaching, centered for them on the inerrancy of Scripture wrapped in the issue of homosexuality. See, the moment, now listen, the moment you do that, the moment you start reinterpreting the apostolic teaching, you will slide straight on in uh, to apostasy, and that's what's happened there. Now again, that wasn't from a secular humanist. It's pinned by a United Church of Christ uh, minister. It, it, all because they've drifted away from apostolic teaching. So what does Paul do? What does he do right at the outset of his letter? He says, no, I really, am an, I really am an apostle. I have apostolic authority because he knows for a church to stay strong, it has to be built and it has to remain on apostolic teaching. Here's the second thing we see here regarding the nature of the church. It belongs to Christ. Look at verse 2. First, it's built on apostolic teaching. Second, you have to recognize that it belongs to Christ, to the church of God, notice this, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, uh, name upon the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says the church belongs to Jesus Christ. And this is Consistent with what Paul says elsewhere. You think of Acts chapter 20 when he calls the Ephesian elders to himself. And he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of God, which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers of, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now, why would he be saying this? Well, remember, there were cliques and there were factions within the church in Corinth. And probably people within their congregation were saying, well, this is Apollos' church. This is Paul's church. This is Peter's church. And what Paul does at the outset is says, oh, no, 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 no. This is God's church. This is Christ's church. The church belongs to Christ. And listen, it's a little bit of a corrective because we talk a little, bit, a little too loosely about who the church belongs to in our culture. 
We will say it in kind of colloquial terms, well, this is Pastor So-and-So's church. And I know what we mean when we say it, but the church doesn't belong to me, and the church doesn't belong, it didn't belong to Rick before me, and the church doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. And the moment we forget that, um, we end up in danger. Remember in Oklahoma, anybody watch Oklahoma recently? Regarding the land, the land, um, in the song it says, we know we belong to the land. Oklahoma, the greatest musical of all time. We can sing, if you want, you can sing along with me. We know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand, right? It's not that the, now think about it for a second, because what it's saying is the land doesn't belong to us. We belong to the land, right? That's how it is in the church. The church doesn't belong to us. We belong to it, and it belongs to Christ. And the moment you forget that, what happens is you reduce the church to either your personal project, and I've seen that, the church gets reduced to your personal project, or it gets reduced to a social club, the Elks Lodge, or the Chamber of Commerce. And you're, what happens is, ever so subtly, your mind shift, your, you have a, um, your mindset shifts from being a contributing member to the body of Christ to simply being a consumer. And then it's about your, being, your needs being met rather than Christ's mission being fulfilled. And so what Paul rightly, does this make sense? Okay, so Paul rightly tells the Corinthians, and we need to hear it as well, that the church belongs to Christ, and his ways and his words are what we're to be all about. So the church, first of all, it's built on apostolic teaching. Second, it belongs to Christ because he's purchased it with his own blood. And his words and his ways are what shapes the life of the church. And then third thing we see here is that we're banded together with other believers. We're banded together with other believers. Look again at verse two. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying not only do we belong to Christ, but that as uh, Christians, we're banded together as brothers and sisters with all those who call upon the name of the Lord. Well, why would he say this? Here's why. Because the Corinthians were starting to think of themselves as, they were starting to think they were something on a stick, right? That they were really impressive. Remember, one of the issues in Corinth was that they had a competitive spirit. And so they were starting to think, well, we're the best church around. Have you ever thought that about your church? We're the best church. We're the only church that's doing anything really meaningful in the body of Christ. So Paul, Paul reminds them, no, 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 no. We're actually all linked spiritually with other Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring churches. And I hope, I hope you realize that. In your Christian walk, I hope you realize that. I hope you've moved on from the phase where you think your church is the only church that's doing anything right. Now, should you like your church? Sure. You should, I hope. <laughs> I hope you like your church, and I hope this is your home church. But mature Christians and mature churches, they recognize that there's other churches in the area doing good work, and it's not a competition. The aim is not competition. The aim is cooperation in the body of Christ. It's the reason why every Sunday we pray for other churches in the Rogue Valley. We pray particularly for one church each Sunday. It's the reason why several years ago I started a gathering of Rogue Valley pastors uh, so that once a quarter we could bring in someone with academic credentials and sit and learn and have theological discussions with one another because the church is better when we're working together and we're cooperating with each other rather than seeing each other as a competition. And, and we, as people, we have to recognize this. Um, a lot of times, young Christians will think, well, my church is the best church and it's the only church in the world doing great things. No, 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 no. First of all, your church, if you belong to this church, is not the best church in the world. I promise you that because there are older, wiser, mature, better pastors in the world. It's a good church, it's a healthy church, but there are other churches that are doing great and marvelous things and we should see it and we should recognize it and we should support it and celebrate it as much as we can. 
And that's, that's a mark of maturity. Now, does that mean we're going to agree with everything every other church does? No. There'll be different styles. There'll be different flavors. Um, and that's okay. But what it does mean is that each Christian community, Christian community, under the apostolic teaching, each Christian community contributes significantly to the ongoing work of Christ, right? By the way, you want a great book on this? Um, jot this name of this book down. It's called Water from a Deep Well. It's written by Jerry Sitzer. More people should read Jerry Sitzer. He's a professor at Whitworth uh, up in eastern Washington. He is a fabulous author. Water from a Deep Well, it traces... Uh, the ongoing contributions from each group uh, throughout church history. And it's a marvelous book. It's one of, my, one of the best books I've ever read. So, now listen, no church is perfect. Each one has its strengths. Each one has its weaknesses. But be a part of a church. Now here, listen. Be a part of a church that values the contributions that other churches make to the body of Christ. And if you're a part of a church, if you're a part of a group... Uh, that never seeks to cooperate with other churches, doesn't name other churches, doesn't partner together with other churches, it actually might be a sign that you're not in a Christian church. It might be a sign that you're in a cult of personality. And there's a lot of that, uh, especially in our area. Um, You might be in a cult of personality and not an actual healthy church. So, Verses one through three, Paul sends a greeting to the church, and now in verses four through nine, how much time do I got? Verse four through nine, he tells of his confidence in the church. He tells of his confidence in the church. And again, remember that this church is a mess. It's a mess. There's all sorts of problems. And yet, in verses four through nine, he speaks of his confidence in the church, and again, it's the confidence that's not grounded in their goodness. His confidence in the church is grounded in the Lord's faithfulness. So let's have a look. Verse 4. Paul says, I give thanks. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him. In all speech. and all knowledge. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. Amazing. That's amazing. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, why does Paul have confidence in the Corinthian church despite all of its problems? Well, he gives us three reasons right here. First, in the past, they've received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse four. He says, I give thanks to my God. I I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus. He says, in the past, you've received Christ's grace. Well, what is grace? Because that's something that gets, the word gets bantied about quite a bit in the church. Well, what is it? In a nutshell, here's what it is. It's the unmerited, undeserved, unrepayable favor of the Lord given to a sinner who acknowledges their sinfulness and repents of their sin and who comes under the loving lordship of Jesus Christ, acknowledging Jesus to be both their Lord and their Savior. And Paul says he knows that when he preached in Corinth, those 18 months, when he came to Corinth and he preached in Corinth for those 18 months, they, he saw them. They came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And his life, the life of Christ, has been imparted to them through the Spirit. He knows that God's grace is at work. And the moment a person receives God's grace, three things are happening simultaneously. Well, what are they? Here's the first, the removal of sin. When God's grace comes to you, three things are happening. The first is the removal of sin. You've been completely forgiven of all of your sin. Completely forgiven. 
So the removal of sin. Second, what happens is the restructuring of our heart. Our heart allegiances shift from the ways of the world, from the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of life, from, from um, the king of this age to the king of the, of the universe. Our heart allegiances changes. And then third thing, there's a reversal of values that are taking place as we embrace the values of our king. So all of these things are taking place, but it's all a process, right? It's a process. But Paul knows that they've genuinely received God's grace. And he says elsewhere in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, jot it down, Philippians 1, 6, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the, day of, on the day of Jesus Christ. The moment of conversion for you. God begins a renovation project. You. You're the renovation project. But you're coming under his, he's a skilled craftsman and he's chipping away, he's carving away and he's going to bring you about to be glorious. He's going, he won't stop until he produces in you Christ-likeness. And that's, that's amazing. And by the way, it's true of the person sitting next to you. They're under the same process. You look at them sometimes, you think, well, that person's not really grown. Same process. They're chipping away at you. And the person who's sitting next to them, and the person who's sitting next to them, all of us. Because remember, the church is a fellowship of sinners before it's a fellowship of saints. And we're all a process. We're all, we all make mistakes. There's all sorts of messes. But Paul's confident that the church, the people, will continue to grow into Christ's likeness because in the past, they've received God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Second reason he's confident is because in the present, they're continually being enriched by God's generous gifts. They're continually being enriched by God's generous gifts. Well, what's his generous gifts? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse five. Paul says that in every way, he said, I always give thanks for you um, because of the grace that was given to you in Christ, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking. Now remember, he's writing to the church. This is not for individuals. So that you, the church, are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, remember, he's, he's talking to the church corporately, uh, the church in Corinth, because no, no individual believer has all of the spiritual gifts. You recognize that, right? No individual believer has all the spiritual gifts, which, by the way, means if you want to experience the fullness of God's blessing, uh, if you want to uh, experience all the gifts of his grace, which are ours in Christ Jesus, it has to be done, and it will only be done, in fellowship with one another. If you want to experience the full blessing of God's grace, it has to be, the only way it can be done is in fellowship with one another, which means, listen, online church can't replicate it. It simply cannot replicate it. Now listen, I'm not down on the online church for those who are sick or for those who are homebound. But it is flat out ridiculous for a Christian to say, I get everything I need by watching online and I can do it all in my PJs. That is ridiculous. You cannot get all that you need. Um, you don't. You don't get the full experience of God's blessing because the full experience of his blessing is given to the church corporately. The gifts that you have, the, the gifts that he's given you, and the gifts that he's given me for the building up of the body of Christ. And the, the, um, for the furtherance of the gospel in our community. The church has to be gathered, though, corporately together. So Paul says each and every church has all the gifts that they need right now to bear, uh, bear witness of Christ effectively in their community. He says, look again at verse 7. He says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift he says that to the church in Corinth. He's saying that to us as well. You're not lacking in any spiritual gift. You have everything you need right now 
to minister effectively in my name for the building up of the local church and for the furtherance of the gospel in the community. When every member of the body of Christ here at TCF is engaged in mission, when every member of the body of Christ here at TCF is engaged with, in mission, we have everything we need to help each other grow into Christ-likeness and to reach our communities with the hope of the gospel, to represent the Lord well to the surrounding community as the Lord has generously gifted the church. And note, by the way, Paul, Paul notes that they were enriched. Look again. Um, verse five. They were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge. And, and Paul camps on those because these are the two gifts that the Corinthians were most proud of. These were the, the two most prized gifts in that community. Why? Well, because remember, what did the Corinthians love? They loved the rhetoricians, the orators of their day. We talked about this last week. They loved the orators of their, their day, and they loved Sophia. They loved wisdom. So these were the two most prized gifts within that community. And so Paul notes that their gifts, they're gifts of the Lord. It's not something... Um, they have in and of themselves, so it shouldn't puff them up with pride, and they should not be used in self-promotion, because when you use your gifts in self-promotion, it leads to clicks. But when it's used in service for the body of Christ, it leads to deeper cohesion. And that's what Paul's saying. So his confidence in the Corinthian church is in the fact that in the past they've received God's grace, in the present they've received uh, abundant gifts, to strengthen the church. And then lastly, in the future, why is he confident? In the future, he says, they will stand guiltless before the Lord. They will stand individually guiltless before the Lord. That is amazing. Look at verse eight. He says, who will, Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is, think about this. Think about how, think of this in light of how messed up the Corinthian church was. Think about it, how messed up they were. And he says, you're gonna stand guiltless before the Lord. It's even more amazing when you consider how messed up we are. You're gonna stand guiltless before the Lord, Christian friend guiltless. God is, look at what he says. God is faithful. He will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord. You're going to stand before the Lord and you're going to be guiltless before him. Do you, let me ask you this. Let me say it like this. I, I don't know what you feel, how you feel your walk with the Lord is going this week. I don't know what level of guilt you walked in here with this morning. But based upon Christ's work, based upon the Holy Spirit at work in you, uh, you will, there will come a day when the Lord returns that you will stand before him completely guiltless. There will, you will be blameless before the Lord because he has paid all of your debt. He has clothed you in his righteousness. He has progressively sanctified you, that you so that you become more and more like Jesus. You will stand before the Lord Guiltless. That's amazing new. Paul elsewhere in, for, in uh, Colossians chapter one, he puts it like this. He says, you who were once alienated, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. But then he goes on and he says this. If indeed, if indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. He's saying, Christian friend, trust me. Let my grace reside in you. Continue to fight for your spiritual walk with me. I know there are all sorts of temptations. I know there are all sorts of things that distract you. I know there's idols of your heart. I know the, the heart is a continual idol factory, churning out new idols for you to worship all the time. Don't do it. Stay with me. Trust me. Come back to me. Walk with me. Stay connected in the church. Be with like-minded brothers and sisters. And in the end, you will be guiltless 
before the Lord. That's amazing. Though individually we make mistakes, we sin, we fall short, though corporately we have missteps, corporately there are things that are messy, the Lord is faithful. He is faithful to you, friend. And as you continue to trust him, he'll continue his renovation project in you, which is wonderfully reassuring, is it not? He will continue to work. That's wonderful. Okay, here's what I want to do. I want to close. Time's up. Let me close by offering three pieces of pastoral advice. Just three pieces of pastoral advice on living well within the body of Christ. Because as I mentioned earlier, a lot of times, young believers will come into the body of Christ and they will be shocked to find out that there are messy situations and messy people in the body of Christ. And so and what happens is when someone sins against them, um, they'll become angry at the church. They'll be angry at the person. And they'll say things like, oh, you know, the church is just full of a bunch of hypocrites. You ever hear that? You know what you say to that, right? Yeah, one more is always welcome. We have an empty seat right here for you. Right here. Uh, there's always room for one more hypocrite. So join us. But that happens all the time. Um, I see this happen all the time. Young Christians will come in, immature, not young in age, but young in the faith. And they'll get plugged in, things will happen, someone will sin against them, and they'll, they'll see that the church is a mess, and the more ministry you get involved in, the more messes you will see. And so they'll, they'll blow out of the church quickly. So let me offer three pieces of pastoral advice on living well in the body of Christ. Here's the first one. Uh, first piece of living well in the body of Christ. Find the church you hate the least and be a contributing member there. Find the church you hate the least and be a contributing member there. That's an old line from an old pastor. Um, but it's true. Find the church you hate the least and be a contributing member there. Um, there's no such thing as a perfect church. Every church has its weaknesses. Every church, John Stott, the great John Stott, used to say every church has its ghetto, meaning its place of um, neg neglect. And that's true. Um, and sometimes people will say, well, I can't find a church that I like. Okay, fine. Well, then find the church that you hate the least and commit to it and be a contributing member there because you got to be in fellowship. You want to grow into Christ-likeness? You want the gifts of the, the full range of the gifts of the, uh, to experience the full range of the gifts of the Spirit? You have to be in fellowship with one another. Here's the second thing. Focus on the good that is there and get behind it, even while problems persist. Find the good that is there and get behind it, even while problems persist. While every, now, think about it, because while every church has its weaknesses, every church also has something that's good. Every Christ-honoring, apostolic-teaching church has something that's good. So focus on the good that is there and get behind it even while the problems persist. Because the problems, by the way, the Lord knows about them. <laughs> the Lord knows about them, and he's using them to mature you into Christ-likeness. A lot of times what will happen, if it's, if it's just messy and not grievous sin, but it's just messy and there's problems, right? A lot of times what will happen is people will get upset about it and they'll, they'll bug out on the church. But the, the process oftentimes we'll use the messy situations in our life to bring about maturity. And we gotta get involved in it. And we gotta, if we see a mess, we can say, you know, here's a messy situation. Maybe, just maybe, I can help it. Maybe we can, I can speak into it. Maybe I can spend more time there, work there, serve there, whatever the case may be. But it's a long process, oftentimes. Problems don't go away overnight. They persist for a season. So focus on the good. You wanna be a, 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 a part of a healthy church you want to live well in the body of Christ? Focus on the good that's there and get behind it even while the problems persist. Here's the third way to live well in the body of Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, not the church. That is the main way, and it's something that we focus on the church a lot more than on Jesus. But Paul didn't. Did you notice in the passage, nine verses, Paul mentions the name of Jesus Christ nine times. 
Nine verses, nine times. Well, why does he do that? Because he wants the Corinthians to get their eyes off of the church. Get your eyes off the church. Get your eyes off of all of the problems. Focus in on the lordship of Jesus Christ because that's where the life is. That's where the life is. He says, I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. Does the church make mistakes? You bet it does. Does the church make missteps? You better believe it. But the church doesn't save you. The church never has saved you. Um, do people in the church make, do misdeeds? Yeah, of course. But they don't save you either. Jesus does. He's the one who saves you. So get your eyes off the, ch- off the church and on to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, I won't make you turn there, but Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews says this, fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You want to live well in the body of Christ? Don't focus on the church. You want to be a valuable part of your church? Don't focus on the church. Focus on the lordship of Jesus Christ because it's Jesus who saves us completely. It's Jesus who sources us generously with his Holy Spirit. It's Jesus who secures our destiny, guiltless before him. So don't focus on the church. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen? Let me pray and I'll let you guys go. Why don't you stand up? I know you've been sitting a long time. Father, We recognize when we talk about the church, we're not talking about a building, we're talking about a people. And we recognize that the church is a hospital for sinners. It is not a museum for saints, which means there will be messes. And anytime there's life, anytime there's lots of life, there's lots of messes. And we don't need to look any farther than our own homes. When our homes are busy and there's full of life, there's full of messes. And that is the way it is in the church as well, Lord. But we want to focus on you, on your grace given to us in Jesus Christ. Um, That will help us to thrive, to think and to live well within the body of Christ. And we need to do that, Lord. This church, this world, our community needs the hope of the gospel. And the church is the means that you've appointed in this age to communicate that to the community. So help us, Lord, as your people Stay focused on you. We trust you. We love you. And as we go back into our homes this afternoon, back into our places of work tomorrow, let the good news of the gospel at every turn and with every opportunity spill out. Help us not talk about the church itself, but about the message of the church. Christ Jesus, our Lord. We trust you, Lord, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.